0: You're listening to Sustainability, Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability, Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe. Talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. Today, Our technologically-reliant societies use around 25,000 terawatt-hours of energy a year. This has helped make us healthier, more productive and enabled the modern world. The problem is that around 85% of global energy comes from burning fossil fuels, much of it to produce electricity. And the carbon emissions that result are heating our atmosphere and changing the climate. The last few years has seen a huge expansion in renewables but this has been more than matched by the year-on-year increase in demand for electricity. More than 60% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuels, and our emissions are still rising. If we are to meet our global target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, we're going to have to decarbonise our power systems much harder and faster. In this episode of Sustainability, Inc., we meet the pioneering companies aiming to do just that. Here's Tina Zuzek, a managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, with a perspective on how companies are approaching this massive transition.
1: While it takes a complex ecosystem of different organizations to actually affect this, as both consumers making different choices, as well as companies making different things available, what's been interesting for my clients is that they are often the ones... At the front line, executing on things that a lot of people wouldn't think are in the purview of a power company. So, you look at transportation, they are the ones who have to plan for the additional electric load that is needed from EVs and things like that. Now, electric vehicles don't solve your whole transportation problem, but they are a big chunk of it, right? Then you look at building heating. Utilities are often also the ones who are responsible for energy efficiency, both on the gas and electric side, and even things like electrification of heating in these different areas, right? And so the
0: huge chunk of your emissions come from those two things, and we haven't even gotten to power it's really interesting how energy is threaded through all of these sectors to power itself. And the source of that power is really important. Global energy giant Orsted used to be one of the most coal-intensive power companies. But it took an early transition to renewables.
2: My name is Mess Nipper, and I have the privilege of being the CEO of Orsted. Because it was back in 2008 when the then-CEO said, we have a vision to turn around and no longer do 85% fossil fuel energy generation, but have 85% renewable energy before 2040, which turns out today to be hopelessly unambitious compared to where we have already come.
0: The switch to renewables in the power sector has been so rapid. I don't think any of us could have imagined it. You've moved to wind mainly. Tell me how that's gone.
2: It's gone phenomenally well. We made an early bet primarily on offshore wind, which turned out to be really wise, because we've been at the very forefront of shaping the offshore wind industry. Essentially, in 10 years, we've gone to now being more than 90% renewable in our full generation of energy. The vision of our company is a world that runs entirely on green energy. So we only wish all of our competitors, our colleagues in the business, to make a fast transformation. Honestly, I think that the reduction of renewable energy costs and especially also for offshore wind, has gone a lot faster than anybody dared to dream of. And today both offshore wind, along with onshore wind and solar power, is lower in two-thirds of the world than coal, gas and nuclear. So this is not becoming competitive, it is outcompeting the fossil fuels.
0: Now there's also been a lot of challenges. Renewables aren't used as a baseload because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And we need to get around that huge problem with flexible and responsive grids and with networking between different countries and different wind farms and of course with storage so tell us about some of the challenges mads and how you're overcoming them
2: our most recent development has been primarily as a large-scale offshore wind developer we've recently chosen within the last few years to re-enter the onshore business so both onshore wind but also solar and battery storage because we believe that those are all gonna be core components of the energy system of the future. We are convinced that a combination of solar and wind, because very often when the sun doesn't shine, it's windy, and with the battery storage solutions already available, that can bridge some hours. But really where I see some of the fundamentals changing is also through making green molecules from green power. So essentially making green hydrogen, from an electrolysis process based on renewable power and then potentially even turning that into green fuels. That means you could essentially in a much more effective way store your energy and then burn that for later. That can also be used for other purposes such as heavy industry, heavy transport, aviation and so on. The combination of the multiple technologies along with smarter grids, I'm sure we can overcome and get to fully carbon-free grids uh, within a decade's time or so. There will be challenges i mean the fundamental capability in our organization was primarily in coal and gas and that meant obviously we needed to say goodbye to many people we needed to build entirely new capabilities we needed to build new supply chain relations we need to shape a new way of deploying our capital so there were so many things happening in parallel but if it is guided by a clear vision and sort of a forceful early action then that resistance doesn't go away But it ends up actually in some cases working for you because you start to gain momentum and then really expecting more exponential change that you think is just something that will give it further fuel for the transformation.
0: Given that we don't have enough renewable electricity at the moment, the world's power stations are run almost entirely on fossil fuels. Can we afford to be using some of it to split water?
2: It is probably the most important reminder why the rollout and build out of renewable energy needs to accelerate a lot more. We could probably abate more CO2 by putting that green electricity into the grid. But the price we're paying is that we won't prepare, we won't be ready to scale hydrogen whenever that capacity is ready. So we need to get going. And it won't be hundreds of or thousands of gigawatts by 2030. But if we have not gotten off the ground with large scale electrolyzers by 2030, then we won't be ready in time. Because there are industries such as steel, aviation, uh, shipping, many others are very hard to abate sectors. They simply need something that burns to decarbonize. And if we don't start that in time to prepare for it, we will simply not meet net zero. And that is why we need to do both ends. We need to decarbonize our grids we also need to build large-scale electrolysers. They don't exist today, but they will soon.
0: So you've essentially pioneered the large-scale renewable power station. What do you need to increase the rollout of
2: renewables? As a world citizen, but also as a CEO of a renewable company, we need to increase the national commitments from countries. What we have today is a good start, but it's nowhere near enough. And then maybe most importantly, We need to have policy enablers that will actually make this happen. And we need to have much more efficient and predictable consenting processes so that we know that given all stakeholders, all the way from natural organizations, NGOs, fishermen union, all of whom are really important, but we need that to be a lot faster. Because if it takes too long to get the seabed allocated, and if it takes even longer to get the consent, we simply won't be in time. We need to scale up the renewable hydrogen and green fuels business now, even though if it costs some really short term slowing down of of the, the greening of the grids, we need to get started. Otherwise, we'll be too late. So apart from having a vision of a world that runs entirely on green energy, another really important part of what we do, apart from continuously creating value for our shareholders and earning money to redeploy in a faster transformation, it is to be a catalyst for change for us showing the world what can be done, being an inspiration for others.
0: What Orsted has done is inspiring others, but it can be daunting. What about other companies who are looking to decarbonize their operations? Tina, how should they go about that? Companies can do a lot of things, but it's not just
1: about what they have to do themselves, but also thinking about their supply chains. It's not enough to say we're using renewable energy for our data centers and we have LEED certified buildings. All of that is wonderful and and great. But for different companies, you'll actually see that a lot of their emissions are coming from their supply chains. And so now it's a question of how do you build in, say, green procurement practices? How do I actually have Carbon as an element of how I make my supply chain decisions. When I have a huge array of small suppliers, how do I work with them to help them figure out their own green strategies and help them develop? It's not an overnight thing, but it's an evolution, and a lot of companies have already started down
0: that path. Just as Orsted made the massive transition out of the coal industry to renewables and to hydrogen, a Swedish steel manufacturer, SSAB, is also undergoing its own evolution to a greener future. And it's also banking on hydrogen.
3: My name is Thomas Scharnfeld, and I'm Vice President of Sustainable Business at SSAB.
0: So steel is one of the hardest sectors to decarbonise. It's responsible for enormous amounts of fossil fuels. Why is that? Why is steel manufacture so energy-intensive?
3: For the steel industry the carbon and coke is part of the process that we're working with. When you make steel out of iron ore, you need to use carbon within the process of turning that into iron. Iron ore is basically iron oxide. It's iron and it's oxygen. And in order to turn that into iron, you need to remove the oxygen. And since the blast furnace was invented in 1300 something, that has been done with carbon in the form of coke. And what happens then is that the oxygen in the iron ore moves to the carbon and forms CO2 as a byproduct, and we're left with the iron, which is what we want to do. So for every ton of iron that you make with a process that is commercially available today, you get at least 1.5 tons of CO2 as part of the deal. We realized rather quickly that we need to leave current way of doing things and we need to reinvent the steel making process. Basically what we want to do is to leave the carbon in the ground and use other methods of making steel. And the path that we have chosen and the announcement that we made already 2016 is that we will leave carbon and coke behind and use hydrogen in our steelmaking process instead. What will happen then when we're using hydrogen is that the oxygen in the iron ore would move not to carbon but to hydrogen and form H2O, also known as water, as the byproduct. And the interesting thing is that we can also use the fact that in this country we have a virtually CO2 free power grid so that we can use electricity to make hydrogen out of water with electrolysis. Hydrogen that we then put into our process, and then we get the water back as a byproduct again.
0: Hydrogen is an excellent fuel source because when you burn it, almost all of the waste is nice, clean water. There are no carbon emissions. The trouble is, almost all of the hydrogen produced today is made from fossil fuels. So even if burning hydrogen is clean, making it isn't. SSAB, though, decided to go down the clean route, using electricity from renewables to produce hydrogen out of water. And in doing so, they've helped nurture the new green hydrogen industry. Thomas.
3: Most of the hydrogen that is commercially available today is actually cracked from natural gas and not necessarily very sustainable at all. And there is a lack of green hydrogen in the world, and when we have completed our project, we will have increased the world production of green hydrogen by thousands of percent. And we're also promoting the use of renewable energy sources, because one thing that is typical for both solar power and wind power is that it's variable and it's hard to control, which means that sometimes you will run into an issue where you have actually higher production of electricity than you can use and vice versa. And since we are going to be a huge user of electricity, we can actually use that also to balance the power grid. And then we can use that excess electricity to produce a lot of hydrogen, and hydrogen that we can then store and use as it is needed in our own processes. And vice versa, on a cold, dark winter night, we can take our load off the network, let others use the electricity, and in our process, use the hydrogen that we have already stored. And that way, we can not only make fossil free steel, but also help to make sure that we can utilize every drop of renewable energy that we have available in the system today.
0: What's the main source of the hydrogen that you're producing?
3: We are using the the Swedish power grid uh, that that we have today, uh, which consists of basically hydropower wind power and nuclear power. And the share of wind power is increasing as the amount of electricity generation is being increased in Sweden.
0: And this is so exciting because there are a lot of hydrogen projects around the world. But as you say, they generally sound good on the surface. But when you look into them in any detail, they're not actually that green. So tell me why you made this decision to get involved in truly green hydrogen.
3: The steel industry makes up 7% of the global CO2 emissions. And at SSAB, we are admittedly the biggest single CO2 emitter in Sweden with 10% of the Swedish CO2 emissions. And that is something that we want to change. We are already today one of the world's most CO2-efficient iron ore-based steel producers. But sometimes being the best just isn't good enough. We still have a significant environmental impact. And that is something that we want to change. We're not talking about reducing CO2 emissions here, we're talking about getting down to zero. We will have no scope one emissions, we will have no scope two emissions. We will make steel without fossil CO2 emissions. We're not talking about introducing this gradually and trying to improve today's processes, but we're really talking about closing down our existing blast furnaces and replace them with new technology. As we approach 2026, which is the year when we have announced to our stakeholders that we will have fossil free steel available on a commercial scale, as a commercial product on commercial terms. This is so exciting. I mean, we're changing an industry that has been using basically the same process for a thousand years. And just seeing what we can do and how we can get others on board and seeing the interest that is out there, not only from customers, but from the society in general, from other types of stakeholders, it is really, really fun.
0: Steel is just one hard-to-abate industry, making decarbonisation a priority. Companies globally and across all sectors are making the transition. Here's Tina from BCG on the reasons behind the shift.
1: It's because there's a complex array of stakeholders that are involved here. Consumers are demanding, in some cases, that they have cleaner options, and sustainability can actually be a business opportunity there are employees of these companies that are demanding it. That, that is the kind of company that they want to work for, and they are pushing it. And then finally, it's uh, shareholders. There's a movement from the people who are investing in these companies to force them to make different decisions in regard to sustainability. And of course, I don't want to minimize the fact that there are executives who are out there trying to do the right thing, but there's a lot of pressures that they are facing from these different groups as well. And that has been a real impetus in starting this. And, and in a way, it's very hopeful to me to see that because that also means that this momentum has started and it's moving. How fast it moves is a question, but I think that the
0: direction of
1: travel is now set.
0: Now that companies know what path to take, how do they afford it? City has created whole ecosystems to support this seismic shift to sustainable business practices. We spoke to Val Smith, City's Chief Sustainability Officer. So Val, in the world of finance, investing in green, sustainable companies
4: makes a lot of sense in terms of financial risk, doesn't it? We have a massive decarbonisation effort ahead of us. All of us do. And there's advisory and finance that will be required for that. So that's the first opportunity here. I think we also see this as a space where we can grow business and accommodate new clients as well, both on the green side as well as the net zero side. So risk can be a powerful driver to start, and certainly these activities are also related to reducing our risk, reducing our clients' risk, but I think even more, it's the opportunity space that's really the motivator and driver here.
0: Now, a lot of companies need green loans and this sort of finance, because it's still fairly new, is slightly more complicated than traditional
4: banking. How has Citi embraced that more challenging role? We are really leaning in heavily on transition, but transition is easy to say it's hard to do. And so we've reorganized many of our businesses to really focus on the transition space. We started with the establishment of a sustainability and corporate transitions team within our banking group. And most recently, we merged together three different business lines, our energy team, our power team, and our chemicals team, into a natural resources and clean energy transition group that are dedicated to helping our clients in the energy space, in the power space, in the chemical space to transition. That will be through a combination of strategic advisory, really bespoke engagement and advisory with our clients. The transition to net zero is I mean, it's a monumental lift. It's the lift, not just of of our era, but generations before, generations to come. And it is going to require a different way of banking. It's gonna require a different way of advisory and it's going to require that broader ecosystem push to truly decarbonize and achieve our net zero commitment. We've all seen this extraordinary rise in solar
0: and wind power, which is now price comparable with fossil fuels if not cheaper. But there are plenty of other technologies that haven't quite made it yet. They're on the cusp of profitability, but they're not there yet. How does City work through that kind of situation?
4: I think for the power sector, as you mentioned, there's already incredible progress in terms of decarbonizing the power sector. We know, for example, that renewables to truly decarbonize may need to be packaged together with some kind of battery storage. So I think battery storage is another technology that is starting to feel tried and true and starting to feel like it's an accepted part of the journey and a part that can be developed today. I think some of the areas that we see clients also beginning to investigate are around hydrogen, There is a race on, and we do need to accelerate the rollout of all of these
0: technologies and to decarbonize much, much faster if we're going to meet our net zero goals by 2050. So what would help the finance industry in terms of rolling that out quickly?
4: There's a tremendous amount of focus and energy and excitement on both the financial sector as well as the broader private sector and a lot of attention being paid to how banks and investors are engaging with our clients and really beginning to lean in on green and social in transition finance. That enabling policy environment is critical to all of us being able to hit our net zero goals. My hope is that we're gonna continue to see tremendous enthusiasm for private sector leadership and action But I think in the private sector, we also need to make sure that we're helping to create a supportive environment for those public policy developments to also happen and for the negotiators who are going to hammer out the next agreement, the next Paris rulebook. So Val, what's the next green trend that finance is chasing at the moment? Rather than focus on trends, I prefer to sort of focus on the pretty deep implementation that has to come out of the net zero commitments that you're seeing in the market, the reporting that needs to begin to flow out of those commitments so that we can understand where companies are in terms of their own net zero journeys. There are other critical ESG issues that we can't forget about while we are accelerating toward this decarbonization. Those include some of our social finance goals, such as access to energy, access to basic infrastructure. Those include the fact that we also need to be firing in all cylinders to make sure that we are protecting biodiversity through our financing. So
0: Tina, if we look at the opportunities for companies that decarbonize, what's the advantage of being an early adopter?
1: If you can figure out ways to use less fuel or less energy, there's actually a good business argument to be made. There is also an incentive in terms of being a first mover can actually be a business opportunity. There is value in being the person in the market now, especially if you're a consumer-facing company, to say, this is the green option. Many people want to buy a greener option. They want to feel like they're doing something good for the environment. Also, there's a branding benefit. I want to specify that not all markets are equal here on how much they care about that, but there are others that do, and that it can actually help attract
0: and retain different kinds of talent. Some of these greener options are just on the cusp of being developed. These are the new innovations and technologies that will power our clean energy world. And one of the most exciting is being pursued by Ever, a global geothermal company.
5: My name is Daniel Mölk. I'm the country manager for Germany and one of the managing directors of our German entity.
6: Robert Winslow, uh, based in Berlin. My job title is executive vice president
5: Now, most power
0: around the world is still generated using fossil fuels. And to decarbonise, obviously, we have to move away from using fossil fuels. And EVA looks at the source beneath our feet, which is a fascinating concept and really has huge potential. Daniel, can you explain exactly what it does?
5: Until EVA came on the map, geothermal industry was producing geothermal brine or geothermal fluid from an existing aquifer.
6: So the original idea was could some of those old oil and gas wells be used perhaps connecting two of them together to make some sort of closed loop system.
5: What you need to develop conventional geothermal projects, you need to fulfill three conditions. You need heat, you need water in the subsurface, and the combination of both needs to be in a depth that you can drill into economically and produce. That is a great technology. But on the land map, there are limited areas where it can be used. We mine the geothermal heat without the need of water being present in the subsurface. Below our feet, there is always temperature. It can vary based on how thick the crust is and uh, the temperature gradient, but the heat is always there. So what our intellectual property and know-how in the company is how to build a very deep radiator that picks up heat only in a closed system from the subsurface and uh, produces it up to surface without the use of additional power that needs to be put into the system. So we don't need pumps. In theory, we could produce the heat without being connected to the grid. Obviously, we want to be, because we want to supply power. But the technology is the drilling into a good formation at depth
0: it's amazing. Is it actually different from a heat pump?
5: The big difference is to circulate a fluid down through the closed system. You need to pump on the surface to pressure the fluid down. There it can pick up the heat and travel back. Because we pick up so much heat with this massive radiator that we drill, the difference in inlet and outlet temperature are big enough that the system circulates on its own. That the heavy cool water column drifts down and the lighter heated up water column drifts up to surface on its own. That's the main difference between a conventional heat pump or a very shallow radiator and our big scale subsurface radiator that we drill. We drill down vertically to our target formation and we fan out this one big well bore into 12. What we call laterals, horizontal drills. So we go down vertically and then we move horizontally 12 times in one direction. And we do this twice and we connect those horizontal wells at the toes to each other. And that creates 12 closed loops in the surface. All the fluid travels down in one big well, fans up into 12 laterals to pick up the heat, travels back to those laterals, gets collected into another big vertical wellbore, and then moves to the surface. And this is all closed. We have steel pipes and everything securing the vertical part. And we built those so-called Everloops. That's our product.
0: So Robert, where are you with this? Have you got a pilot project yet?
6: About an hour and a half north of Calgary and Alberta, and then about 15 minutes west uh, towards the mountains. We built a system with two drilling rigs, so it works on a thermosiphon, so it flows by itself. The connection or, or the closed loop is made by a pipe on, on surface connecting the, the inlet and the outlet well. The thermal output, the heat output from the system is still within 2% of what has been modeled or what was what has been predicted in terms of the thermodynamic performance, so it works.
0: And in terms of power, you can use that heat to drive a turbine, can't you?
6: Yes, you can. The, the challenge on the power side is that you need more heat. So, yes, the energy is freely available. The cost of getting it out is significant, <laughs> or not insignificant. And one of the reasons why it has become economic, ironically, is because of the oil and gas industry. So if you take a long-reach horizontal well... It used to take around three months to drill that. Nowadays, because of what's happened with the shale industry in North America, that's gone from three months down to eight days. So the economics of what we're doing with Everloop um, are really possible only because of what has happened in in oil and gas. So as we transition from oil and gas or fossil-based fuels to geothermal and other renewable energies, the oil companies are very quickly becoming energy companies.
0: Ironically, it's the wealth of expertise from the oil and gas industry that will now help clean geothermal power take off. So we have the technologies we need to fully decarbonise the power sector. What's held us back has been the political will and the cost. But this is changing, as Tina says, Most of the technologies
1: in place that we need to do most of the decarbonization already exist today. Sometimes it's a question of when these technologies come down the scale curve. But what you see in these cases now, you actually have renewables that are at par even cheaper than conventional fuels. One of the ones that I've been thinking about a lot is actually synthetic fuels and what we can do in terms of sustainable fuels for aviation. And that is a sector that is going to be really, really hard to abate. And some of the innovations that we're looking at in terms of synthetic fuels that are sustainable, that are clean, that can be cost effective, I think are going to be really, really important.
0: We still have a very long way to go to decarbonise our fossil fuel reliant power systems and achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But the plunge in cost of renewables and the speed at which they're being rolled out is impressive and hopeful. As we've heard, companies can prioritise clean energy and they must sustainability inc is a boston consulting group podcast produced by fortune brand studio without the participation of the fortune editorial staff join us next time when we'll be discussing the exciting leaps being made in the realm of product end-of-life care from the circular economy to molecular recycling technology